It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Okay, preparing today's show was one of those times I found myself getting kind of giddy about it because, I mean, we have mixed in really about everything that excites me about investing. I got a little warm Buffett here because you know, a few of you have been asking me, hey, Brian, shareholder letters, 2013, what's going on? You typically look at this like Christmas morning and you, you do a podcast on it. We're a little behind. And to be honest with you, Warren put some good information. I'm going to go through one of those items today. But it was a little drier than normal. I, I, I Just straight up telling you, Warren was a little drier. So I've got some other things. He talks about dividends and, and, and the use of capital with investing. And I'm going to cover that at a later time. But we're going to give you a taste of Warren Buffett today. We also, I'm going to kind of go through some of the things that I have found from my investment experience of managing money for going on two decades now of wow. what's important. I know, I'm getting old. Two decades. Yeah, I'm getting old. Don't say it like that. So... We're going to share those things. I do feel like we need – there's, there's several things we need to address, but and we're going to do this very quickly. I am sad today because in prep for the show, as we're about to record the show, my first iPod officially died. I, I look on the back of this thing. It's got 2005 listed on it. It really ought to go in the Hall of Fame because this is what – Kind of inspired me to even start the Money Guy show. So you know, it's I kind think of we should get it, it framed and hang it hang it in the studio. What do you it, think it, about that? It's it, it's a classic. I mean, that's first generation hard drive driven, not not flash memory. That's hard drive in there. That's why I'm surprised it lasted until 2013. Well, things been there since the beginning, though. Second thing, Bo, I know there was um, some updates we needed. Last show we did was talking about the ABCs, talking about A shares, B shares, C shares, difference between commission funds and some of the fees. And there need to be a, a few points of clarification made. So, Bo, go ahead and jump in. Yeah, so it sounds like we there were a few things that we probably didn't explain as clearly as we should have. And we had a couple of different emails come in. And what's interesting is I think that actually a number of the emails were from other financial advisors. So, guys, thank you so much for being out there listening. Um, the, the two I'm going to share, one's from Peter, the other's from Scott, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase so we can move on. But uh, it sounds like we did not make this point clear in the last show. It says, as you know, 12B1 fees are already included in a fund's total operating expenses. So when you talk about the total walkout cost, you need to net the 12B1 from the, uh, from the operating expenses. And then it says, this is something that I didn't know. It says, please note that B shares are no longer allowed at, and this guy said where he worked, um, and many other broker-dealers and most financial advisors I know have moved to an advisory model uh, and a fee-based relationship. And then the other email, so the same thing, hey, guys, don't don't forget that 12B1 fees need to be met, uh, netted out. And then it said most mutual fund companies no longer allow investments in the class of B shares. And just to be honest, we don't really deal with, B, with commission funds, so I didn't even know that most fund companies didn't use B shares anymore. But it makes me happy to hear that because I don't think they are the best fit for most advisors. Uh, and then it says, you neglected to mention that when pur purchasing institutional shares, you often have to pay an extra fee for an advisor. Um, that is true, uh, depending on where you are. Some people actually don't have to do that, depending on what their asset level is. Um, and then it said, you neglected to mention that you can exchange mutual funds to different funds within the same company without incurring any additional sales charges. That one annoyed me the most because I actually had it written down. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, those are, so guys, thank you so much for keeping us on our toes and, and for uh, adding that in there. I'm so sorry we didn't include that last week. But now you know. 
Well, today's show, and, and this is one of those things, we talk about this from time to time, but everything just, the planet's kind of aligned at the right time. I, I kind of, this is a, a working title, Carol, don't think you have to actually use this, but just in writing my show notes, Investing Truce, Truce, and How to Avoid the Noise. Now, what I mean by that, and because we've done other shows on how to avoid the noise, and we talk about the media, financial media specifically, but I, I want to kind of talk to you about the these investing truths that I've figured out. The first thing is, Bo started working with me back in 2008, and one of the first things, you started in what, May 2008? I started in May of 2008, yeah. And y'all remember, you know, birds were chirping, <laughs> sun was out. All things were good. I mean, well, there were some cracks on the wall. I mean, we started realizing in the fourth quarter of 2007 that we might be headed for some type of downturn or recession. How little did we know that 2008 was going to be a monumental historic year? Not in a good way. So when we were going through that crisis, starting out around August, September, going really all the way through November. We took a little bit of a break in December because everybody was very optimistic. We had a brand new president coming on board. And then kaboom, January through the first part of March was, oh my God, look out below. This thing is dropping. And that's what was going on with the financial world. I looked at Bo and I said, Bo, I can tell you that I, I experienced the dot-com bubble and this felt the same gut feeling I'm feeling right now as what I remember feeling back in 2000, 2001, 2002. So if you can bottle this feeling up, it will be priceless for you in the future. This really is downturns. And the last five years have really provided a lot of rich material on what we can learn on being a really good investment person. And I think it's probably a good time to kind of review that because the other thing that's going on right now, we're at a historic time where both the Dow and the S&P 500 have hit all-time highs. Now, I think it's it's we should be mindful and point out that a lot of the indicators and, and indices are not hitting all-time highs. I mean, NASDAQ is way off. Right. China's index is way off. Was it Argentina, Brazil? Uh, Brazil, a lot of the BRIC countries. They, yeah. I mean, a lot of South America, they are still not at where they were back when we hit the peaks in 2007. But our own, you know, the, the 30 stocks that make up the Dow and then the S&P 500 are hitting all-time highs, and that's led to several quotes. And I wrote down, I, I paraphrased some quotes I've heard just in the last two weeks. I kid you not, this is how much I hear this stuff. The first one was, all-time high, Brian. Should we be pulling back on that stock market? I mean, how, did, don't we hear this? Oh, stuff? yeah, it comes frequently, very um, frequently. The second thing, uh, I've actually got an email on this this morning, and this is the second email from the same person. So um, I think if I keep, maybe the third time I tell them, it'll all kind of sink in, <laughs> sink in that we've got the plan put together. Brian, this bond market's a bubble. We should be avoiding all bonds. We hear that a lot. We do hear that a And, whole and I will lot. tell you, that rightfully so. There's some truths that probably after being in a, an extended bull market for bonds, because remember, they have an inverse relationship. When interest rates go up, bond prices come down. So we, since we've been in a declining interest rate environment for, for really the last 30, 40 years, it's no wonder that bond funds, bond mutual funds, bond holdings have done incredibly well. So we probably are flipping the switch on that. But I don't think it's going to happen overnight. So don't let that sway you. Then next, we were at a 401k enrollment meeting just last Friday. These are educated people. I mean, to work in the medical field, 
you have to go to school. Absolutely. I mean, these are these are nurses. These are these are people that are educated. And I kid you not, one said, um, I don't know if he called me Brian because he doesn't know me that close. Right. You know, I'm just the guy who stood up in front of the room and gave him the education. He said, all I do is put money in and lose it over time. That doesn't sound like a winning proposition. Like, where has he been? (laughs) I mean, has he been investing for the last few years? I mean, because it's actually been not bad if you can kind of cover your eyes on how bad 2008 was. And then this last one, you know, and you guys have probably noticed, we don't talk about certain things, or at least we try to avoid because we we have a very diverse client base, first of all. So we've kind of gotten good at this over the years. We try to stay out of politics, religion, and things like that because usually you're not going to convert people. And in politics, I mean, we right after the election, it, you know, we received a few calls from people saying, or right before I should say, right. if so and so is elected, the economy is not going to make it. And, and we, we actually we actually receive calls on both sides of that. Yeah, that's what I mean. On both sides. I mean, it, this is that's why I think it's best to avoid politics when you're talking about, and especially when you're doing a service like we're doing with the Money Guy Show. Um, so these are things that I've heard, and when I hear this stuff, I feel like we're in a, a very rich environment that we probably need to dispel a lot of the bad information that's out there. Because if I was new to investing. And I think Bo and I take for granted sometimes because we've been doing this long enough. I love it. This is the stuff that gets me excited. I read, I consume as much as I can to keep up with the financial world. I'm reading, you know, the Wall Street Journal. I even, I'm going on vacation in three weeks, probably go download two or three books to help me on, um, you know, how to run a better financial planning firm and how to better know when I'm getting value out of an investment. That's how nerdy we are. But I think I take for granted that not everybody has this knowledge. So if you're new to investing, or not even new, if you've just been an investor, we've been in such a crazy financial market for the last five to six years, you don't even have to be brand new and still not know all the different ways that the market works. Right. So we want to be that resource to you. Now, I haven't given the intro. Let me just tell you, money-guy.com, if you're brand new, go check it out. We have show notes. Sign up for the free stuff. We'll shoot you out you know, emails every time we put out new content. We, if you want to get into archives, if you love what we're doing, that's part of the premium section. That's it. That was a good little intro. That's we'll it. get into the rest later. But here's, here's what my thoughts are on investing, and then I'm going to throw out there a clip from Warren Buffett in a minute. But I've realized... And this is the thing, all my doctors, if y'all are listening, you know, pay attention to this part, is that investing is a great way to earn money and make money and build financial independence over time and most likely slowly. You hear that last part? That's the important part. Well, I mean, it really is. It's the whole tortoise and the hare. I mean, you can have great years in investing. I don't want you to think when I say slowly, that means, oh, ho-hum, we're not going to make any money. No, you, you can make money. But to do it right, you don't swing for the fences every time. I mean, some of the best sports players of all time aren't the big bombers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I ought to be letting you do the baseball reference, <laughs> Bo, since you played college ball. But um, you get the singles. Yep. You, you get the runs in. I mean, that, that's really where it's at. you, you got to employ key concepts. And these are things that we've talked about a lot. The first, when I go talk to, to – doesn't matter if it's elementary school when we talk to when I go to elementary school talk to many society where they're trying to introduce small business and just how economic concepts work to the elementary students I talk about this concept 
when I talk to middle school and high school students about how they need to pay attention to their career and how important education is, and then talking about personal finance, I talk about deferred gratification. So few people understand how important deferred gratification is to building success. I mean, Dave Ramsey, you know, love him or hate him, he is dead on when he says, live like no one else to live like no one else in the future. And there really is a lot of truth to that. The second concept that I like to tell people about, really key concept, Albert Einstein talked about it was one of the most powerful things in the universe, compounding interest. Mm Got to be in it to make money in in those extended periods of time. And then one that we like that kind of takes the emotion out of investing. And from a kind of a contrarian standpoint, this will make take the sting out a touch when we do have those bad days in the market. And that is dollar cost averaging. What is really sick is that dollar cost averaging has made me, I mean, we close out the quarter, you know, like on March 31st or June 30th or September 30th. Well, that's also when we put in my 401k contribution for the company. And what I find interesting, sometimes I don't get upset when the market's down a little bit because I feel like I'm getting cheap shares. It is sick, but I think we both do it. We both know exactly which day all of our automatic contributions happen. We're hoping for just a little bit of a discount on that day, just a little bit of a sale. And there's no, I mean, it really is a psychological game on that. But in, but taking the other side of it, what I like about dollar cost averaging is, is that you go through extended periods. One of the, one of the quotes or parts of an article I'm going to read to you guys in a minute talks about that if you'd just been investing on a monthly basis through this crazy market we've had for the last five years, you're, you're much, much better. I mean, it, there, there's all kind of historical data. One of, the things, one of the things that I, that I did coming out of the last downturn is I was doing the dollar cost averaging plan. And one thing that I think is so interesting is if you have something like at Fidelity, if you use Fidelity Investments, you can actually see the lots as you're investing. You can pull it up, and you can see how much your contribution each month is worth today. And it is kind of incredible. The, the money that you've made the most money on was the stuff going in in 08 and 09. And that gets pretty exciting to watch as that kind of, as it kind of builds over time. I tell people, you know, and I, we were talking to a hedge fund manager not long ago, and he said volatility is what kills alpha. And remember talking, you know, getting really nerdy and getting into investment, you know, words. When you talk about alpha, that's really the value that a manager is putting. Or you as, if you're a do-it-yourselfer, as you're putting together your portfolio, your outsized performance over the long term, that's alpha. And volatility is your mortal enemy. Just remember that. So, but I tell you, it can be volatile. I don't want, I don't want to candy coat this and say you invest, you're always going to make money. It, it just doesn't work that way. It's that whole concept of risk versus reward. Um, I mean, if, if this was easy, everybody would do it. That's and it. as we know from the statistics, not everybody's doing it. <laughs> the average person out there is not saving. Even the people making lots of money income wise. Aren't some saving. of them aren't saving? So, um, but if you have a long term horizon, you will be rewarded. I mean, when I talk about long term, I'm really talking, you know, over five years starts feeling okay to be invested in, in in like the equity marketplace. Seven years makes me feel really comfortable. If you can really think about things on a ten year concept, you're going to be gold. I mean, there's very few times if you look at it from a ten year basis, you wouldn't be rewarded. Um, I always tell people, because of the volatility, how do you avoid the volatility? I always tell people diversification is your friend. Diversification helps you sleep at night, and it helps you make it through the full marathon. 
I mean, when I, I, I reference marathons on purpose, my wife does half marathons and she'll tell you, I mean, I, I, we, we did even five Ks. Everybody does five Ks. I remember the first neighborhood five K I ran in. I'm not a runner, but I'm a tall guy. So I, I, I'm a gazelle with these legs <laughs> at the beginning. So I figured, you know, with this neighborhood, I was going to get out front. Okay. Took off. How'd that work out for you? You know, best hundred yards when I was in the front <laughs> that you've ever seen. But then, you know, that's the thing. Investing's the same way. I mean, you can, you have to think about this as a marathon. And, you know, we had, we had a client talk to us today. He heard that the stock market made, you know, the, the S&P made 10% in the first quarter. He goes, did I make 10% this quarter? Nope. He's like, why didn't I make 10%? I was like, because remember, you're over 60. So we can't buy you all equities. I mean, that would be like sprinting for the first 100 yards, but then stopping if we hit a bad part in the market. Right. And that's why you do have to diversify, and that's going to help you make it through processes. I always tell people, I've changed the way I say this. I, you know, I say it, it has a lots of different ways I say it. Avoid chasing the hot dot or... Um, avoid the latest and greatest trend. I mean, because there's always something that's hot. I mean, I wasn't around in investing, but I heard that the Nifty 50, that was very popular back in the 60s and 70s. Right. Um, tech and internet investments. Holy cow. Man, I can tell you because that was in the sweet spot of when I was managing, you know, starting to manage money. And you had Alan Greenspan step up and say, irrational exuberance. Mm -hmm. That was the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, that is synonymous with that period of time of investing. And then who could forget the thing that has probably soured everybody of Bo's generation from wanting to own a home? The real estate bubble from 2003 to 2007, we have seen just how horrible it can be to your long-term stability if you just lose assets on something that's leveraged. That's it. And that's what, that's what your house is. So I've been, you know, as I've been in my 15-year mortgage. Um, I've been prepaying all that negative equity for the last few years. I'm close to being back to break even on my house. And that's not because it's appreciated. It's because I've been prepaying all that negative equity with that 15-year mortgage. Um, I want to kind of jump into the whole Warren Buffett because this Warren, you know, now Warren's not scared to talk about the politics. Right. And I'm not, I'm not going to pick on Warren too much because I'm still hoping – before it's all over for me in this whole investment game, before Warren leaves this planet, I'm thinking at some point I'm going to get to meet Warren. I, I really do feel that. So, but, so here's a quote that's in the shareholder letters from 2013. It's on the top of page six. I mean, very top of, of page six of his shareholder letters. It says, and I'm going to read this word for word, American business will do fine over time. And stocks will do well just as certainly since their fate is tied to business performance. Periodic setbacks will occur, yes, but investors and managers are in a game that is heavily stacked in their favor. The Dow Jones Industrial Advance from 66, that's right, 66, to 11,497 in the 20th century. A staggering 17,320%. That's incredible. That's my word. Increase that materialized, increase uh, that 17,320% increase that materialized despite four costly wars, a Great Depression, and many recessions. And don't forget that shareholders receive substantial dividends throughout the century as well. Since the basic game is so favorable, Charlie and I believe it's a terrible mistake to try to dance in and out of it based upon the turn of ter 
tarot cards. I mean, tarot that's what, cards. Yeah. Yeah. Tarot no, cards. See, I don't believe in all that out there stuff, so don't have a lot of exposure to that. The predictions of quote experts, and Bo, you're going to cover that in a minute too, or the ebb and flow of business activity. The risk of being out of the game are huge compared to the risk of being in it. My own history provides a dramatic example. I made my first stock purchase in the spring of 1942, when the U.S. was suffering major losses throughout the Pacific War Zone. Each day's headlines told of more setbacks. Even so, there was no talk about uncertainty. Every, and he, he kind of puts a little exclamation on every, American I knew believed we would prevail. The country's success since that perilous time boggles the mind. On an inflation-adjusted basis, GDP per capita more than quadrupled between 1941 and 2012. Throughout that period, every tomorrow has been uncertain. America's destiny, however, has always been clear. Ever-increasing abundance. I mean, Wow, I mean, I always get the little goosebumps, even though I didn't feel like Warren, I kind of felt like he dialed it in a little bit on this year's shareholders letter. He's still just knocking it out of the park. He's got it. He's still I mean, got he, it. I did think it was kind of funny. He put this little humorous thing in there, his last sentence. If you are a CEO who has some large, profitable project, you're shelving because of short-term worries, call us at Berkshire. Let us unburden you. <laughs> and he really does. I mean, if you, anybody's read the, the letters to shareholders for, for years, they really do put points throughout the letters that say, hey, if you own a private company that's very profitable and maybe you're looking for family transition planning or you just want to get out of the game, call us. And that's why it's shooting fish in the barrel for this guy. I mean, it, nobody gets deals from Bank of America, GE, Goldman Sachs, because he has so much capital. That's it. Um, I, I didn't mean, I didn't tell you I was going to do this because I go into sidebars. I spoke to a, to third grade class handing out dictionaries. I do a dictionary project here locally and I was sponsoring some elementary schools. They hand out these dictionaries that have all the, the, the GDP revenue as well as expenditures for all these comp- countries throughout. The, it has every country in the world. Right. You realize Berkshire Hathaway last year made $24 billion. <laughs> That was, I mean, there were some really notable con- countries that that just blew the doors off of. That's I mean, crazy. It, it was just insane when I was comparing which countries had a lower GDP, total, you know, money coming revenue. into their entire country, independent, sovereign country that is has less revenue coming through, and you know, just incredible stuff. Holy so, cow! Um, the other thing I found out was that you guys in Oklahoma. Y'all don't know what a flower is because your state flower is the mistletoe. That's not a flower. That's a fungus. But um, I, I get back on point. Um, I thought it was also interesting. Great, great piece that fit into this entire discussion was this was from the Motley, Fru- Motley Fool's website. I don't know what's wrong with my tongue. It's not keeping up with my brain. Um, this came out back in March 8th of 2013, and this was written by Morgan Housel. The most inevitable headline of all time. And this comes from, it says, after the Dow Jones hit a new record high this week, and remember this is from March 8th of 2013, hit a new record high this week, more than double off of its 2009 lows. The Wall Street Journal published one of the most inevitable headlines of all time. Quote, market rewarded those who stuck it out. 
<laughs> in that, I mean, that, that really is true. I mean, it, it is one of those things, and this ties in back to kind of bringing it back to what I was talking about the fir- at the beginning of this. It said, for those who stuck it out for the last five years, the 2008 crash, literally one of the sharpest wealth destroyers in history, is now a set of painful memories at worst and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity at best. If you did nothing, your portfolio is likely larger today than it was in 2007. True that. Right. If you bought steadily over the last five years, it's probably much larger. There's that dollar-cost averaging concept I was talking about. Only if you sold near the bottom and hid somewhere else have you lost money. And we, we, we've had people do that. History is clear on this. Hold stocks for a long time and your odds of making money are very high. Since 1871, that's right, 1871, none of you guys were here back in 1871. There have been only been four periods when an investor purchasing stocks didn't make money in real inflation-adjusted terms over a 10-year period. Remember, I said 10 years is really the ideal. 1908, 1929, the late 60s, and then the late 1990s. So we just came out of one of those periods not too long ago. Well, to me, somebody who's older, it's not too long ago for you. Half a lifetime. <laughs> Quit. <laughs> you, you, that's not true. If you purchase stocks once a month, remember dollar-cost averaging, every month since 1871, 87.8% of your purchases would be profitable 10 years out. It's unbelievable. Remember, now, investing is nothing like gambling. But they build mega, 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 mega buildings in Las Vegas and Macaw or wherever all these other gambling places are. Right. Off of the house having, what, a 6% edge? Something like that. I mean, less than 10. Less than 10% edge. So you can see with the cards are so stacked. Warren Buffett nailed it. 88% of your purchases would be profitable 10 years out, even adjusted for inflation. The four brief periods that left you in the red after a decade were invariably followed by above-average returns. Remember, it's that whole rubber band concept. We've talked about that in the past. If you bring that thing, however far you bring that rubber band down the more volatility you know the more you know trajectory it's going to shoot it straight up that period includes the aftermath of the civil war remember this is 1871 two world wars a flu pandemic terrorist attacks droughts presidential assassinations depressions recessions crippling debts bank runs high inflation deflation oil embargoes and dozen dozens of bubbles through it all the market rewarded those who stuck it out it's the same story time and time again. It is no different this time around. It'll likely will be no different next time around. I like this because this uses one of the managers that we're very familiar with. What else did we learn from the last five years? One of my favorite quotes was from investor Jeff Gunlock, mm-hmm. rock star of the bond industry, literally. <laughs> His quote is, in risk assets, you make 80% of your money 20% of the time. That's a fact. It said, during the 21,000 or so trading days between 1928 and today, the Dow Jones went from 240 to 14,000. That kind of is an echo of the whole Warren Buffett piece, too. That's what I'm telling you. Planets really aligned on all this stuff. Or an average annual return of 5%. And that's not including dividends. Dividends would have pushed that up easily another, you know, close to 2%. Um, If you missed just 20 of the best days during that period, annual return, fell to 2.6, which is to say half of the compounded gains took place on 0.09% of the trading days. That's the numerical version of what Gunlock was, Wisdom was mm-hmm. talking about. 
sure if you missed, and this is, I believe me, whenever I've quoted this, because we've talked about that quote before, that, I mean, that stat, people always write me emails and they say, sure, if you missed the 20 worst trading days, you would have done much better. Right. And I'm like, yeah, but, and I think this author made a great point, but most of those 20 best trading days and the 20 worst trading days happen during the same periods, often during the same months. No one can time the market so perfect as to jump in and out in the exact right days. So what happens is that those who try to avoid the market's big drops tend to miss the market's even bigger gains. And this is dead on. It says, those who sold when the Dow was at 8,000 may have thought that they were smart when it continued to fall to 6,000. And there are, I can, Mm -hmm. you know, can't you see those people? Oh, I've I've figured this thing out. But when, before they knew it, it was back above 10,000, 12,000, 13,000, 14,000. And their attempt to time the market ended up costing them some serious money. If you want to consistently enjoy the market's big gains, you have to put up with its declines from time to time. Trying to avoid that reality is one of the surest ways to earn poor returns. This, too, is the same story over and over and over again. One lesson from the past five years is the single most important question an investor can ask is, how long am I investing for? If you're a day trader, a down day is a loss. Right. If you're five years from retirement, a down year can be scary. If you're in your 20s and saving for retirement, a down decade means little. The same outcome during a given period of time can mean very different things for very different people. So I think, I mean, I was just, I mean, I feel like I can walk out the building now because that just was (laughs) cathartic to talk about because I think it's important. Understand why you're investing. I mean, this thing is not, it's not the lotto. It's not gambling. It, there really is a process. And Warren Buffett nailed it in the fact that he says that, look, our economy is tied to the success of businesses. Businesses, and Bo, I was, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Businesses are very stable right now. Um, I know in our commentary that you were, were working on and you let me look over your shoulder and read a little bit of it, you were talking about how the market today hitting the all-time highs. And believe me, we don't know. Remember, we don't have the crystal ball either. Market could fall down next week. Right. Doesn't mean we're going to change anything. But tell us what's different about this market versus 2007. So, yeah, let's, let's talk about some numbers. Let's talk about the last two market highs that we hit, uh, March of 2000 and then October of 2007. In March of 2000, the S&P was trading right around 1500 It had an earning, It had earnings of $56 per share, was paying a dividend of $16.25 per share, and it was trading at a price to earnings of 27 times. Okay, so that was the last high. The, the high after that was October of 2007. Market was trading at 1550. So we've gone from 1500 to 1550. The earnings went from $56 up to $82.54 per share. The dividend had gone from 16 and a quarter per share to $27 or almost $28 per share. And the price to earnings was 19 times. Was it trading at 19 times earnings? So here we are today at the close of the last quarter, March 31st. The S&P 500 was trading right at 1560, so we're up 10 points from there. Basically the same place we were back in 2007, but listen to this. The earnings on the S&P 500 have gone from $82.5 per share to $100 per share, 102 to be exact. The dividend went from 27.73 to almost $30 to exactly $30.44 and it's trading at 15 times earnings. Put that in context versus the alternatives. 
Back in 2000, the 10-year Treasury bond was yielding 5.8%. 2007, the 10-year Treasury bond was yielding 4.5%. As of March, 10-year Treasury bond yielding 1.9%. So what does all this mean? You're right. The market is at the same place that it was back in October of 2007. It's hit the same high. But holy cow, the companies are more profitable, have higher earnings, are paying larger dividends, and the alternatives to investing in the stock market are scary with bond yields at 1.89%. Because remember, it's exactly what Brian said. The bonds, bond investing is an inverse relationship. If, if the only way that interest rates can go now, the only feasible way is up, that means bond prices are going to go down. So you're not getting a ton of yield from bonds, and there's not a lot of price appreciation, and the market spitting out a healthy dividend yield with strong earnings. It's a little bit different than the last two times. So that's what, and by the way, none of this is us making a recommendation to go load up your portfolio 100% stocks or to get the heck out of bonds. I mean, I will tell you, a lot of our portfolios still have bonds. It's just we've done it in a smart way. We try to make sure we avoid just no different than when we look at international, you know, all this stuff that happened in Cyprus. That's a whole nother podcast I could talk about. It didn't impact us because right. we, we walked out of Europe a long time ago because we saw that they have, hey, tremendous debt issues. Want to be careful with diversification is your answer Absolutely. on those type of things. And both, I think you illustrated those, those statistics show you we don't know what's going to happen in the next two weeks, but from a valuation standpoint, they don't look crazy. That's right. That price to earnings ratio did not, from a historical standpoint, seem that wild. It was definitely no 2000. When we, we, you know, when we were talking about we're in a new paradigm, that's why we had to change all these indicators. It's because, hey, we didn't, you can go buy your groceries on the internet and it doesn't matter that the valuation of this internet grocery company is worth more than all the brick and mortar grocery stores combined. This is a new paradigm. No, we don't, we're not saying that. We're not trying to make the numbers look good to where we are in our point in history. We're just saying historically they even look good. The other thing, and I know you're right. You called it. The show's going a little long. I hate to rush you. But we had a great piece that also talked about how some of these gurus who are brilliant, you know, we're not calling any of these people stupid, dumb idiots, but it, the, the market has made them look foolish to a degree. Um, um, go over to who some of these people are. Yeah, so what this is, this is an article from Business Insider, and it's called The Idiot Maker Rally. And it says, check out all the gurus made to look like fools by this market. And so what it does is it actually walks through and it gives 35 different people that I would call titans of the financial arena. I mean, these are guys who manage billions of dollars collectively, are probably worth billions of dollars collectively, and really know their stuff financially. Uh, but it kind of goes through what they were saying throughout the past five years. And I'm just going to hit some highlights, and I won't read the articles, but I'll kind of read to you what each of them said. So in March of 2009, Noriel Rubini, and for those of you who don't know, that's Dr. Doom, He's the guy who predicted the economic collapse in 2008 and 2009. In March of 2009, Noriel Rubini predicts new lows in the next 18 months. <laughs> A little bit wrong on that, Noriel. Um, moving on, the next guy, Jeremy Grantham. He's a guy who we read a lot of his stuff. He's very well published. He, uh, he puts a lot of articles out there. Um, in October of 2009, he says that this is the last hurrah. Market had rebounded from March of 2009 to October. He said, that's it. We're about to see, about to see some scary stuff. Get, just to give perspective to everybody, what's, what, where the, 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 I don't know, choose the S&P, choose the Dow. Where were they at in each of these things and where are they now? So the Dow, uh, uh so I'm just going to use Grantham's. The Dow was at 9,972 when Jeremy Grantham said this. 
today, or as of the writing of this article, it was at 14250 So he'd have walked away from essentially 40%. That's it. That's exactly right. Uh, the next guy on this list, and we love this guy. It's Bill Gross. You've heard us talk about him hundreds of times. He is the Warren Buffett of the bond marketplace. This guy knows his stuff, no doubt. But in October of 2009, even Bill says that the rally is at its pinnacle. That was in October. Again, the Dow was at 9700 with the writing of this article is at 14200 Um The next guy, he's actually a, a, a he, an understudy of Bill Gross. He manages a couple bond funds at Brilliant Pimco. Brilliant guy, too. His name is Mohamed El Arain. And um, in December of 2009, so he even went a little bit further out, he says stocks will tank within one month. So from December to January, he was predicting stocks to tank. When he said that, the Dow was at 10500 And at the writing of this article, again, it was right over 14000 Um just two more that I think are funny. One is George Soros. For those of you who don't know, George Soros kind of made uh, made a name for himself in the currency marketplace. He was the guy who actually broke the buck, so to say. It wasn't the buck at the time, but he actually shorted currency uh, in Great Britain, the British pound, uh, many years ago, and actually had a profit of a billion dollars in one day. That's kind of what he's known for. Um, in June of 2010, he said that the market was overextended. At that point, the Dow was at 9,900. Again, he walked away from all that gain, um, assuming he stayed out. I have a feeling he probably didn't. Uh, and then the last guy, this is actually, uh, we, we can say it now, this is a mutual fund that we've used for a number of years up until probably three years ago. We finally decided to start moving away from this guy. But it's John Hussman. In, uh, in October of 2010, John Hussman says the market is overvalued, overbought, overbullish. Um, so he missed out on two very good market return years. And then again, uh, he came out in October of 2011 and says a recession and says, uh, he calls a recession and says a European mess has only gotten started. So again, he walked away from another year. Well, he's partially right. Yeah, he was partially right. <laughs> he was partially right. Um, I think if you would have based your entire investing prowess off of anything that any one of these guys said, you did it wrong. Um, so what is our recommendation for how you should do? We don't think you should think in terms of, recessions and expansions, get in, get out. We think if you design an asset allocation that matches your goals, your age, your risk tolerance, all the other variables that go into it, get the risk right and the return will follow. That's the most important part. Guys, this show was fun today. I mean, this one, it's almost felt like a really brisk run where you, you know, you just feel energized because it hit all the sweet spots what gets us excited about really managing money and investing. If you want to reach out to us, I mean, first, let me give you kind of some of the basics. Money-guy.com is the website for the show. Um, remember, there's no corporate backing for this show. This is truly a, a, a thing of passion that has kind of really grown on its own. It's, it's amazing. It's my own little Frankenstein creation. Um, thank you for all of you guys who've supported us, written great comments out there on iTunes. Um, listen to us on Stitcher, any of the other great places that you can go pull this data down. Um, you've made this show what it is. If you want to write the show, you can write me directly. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. You can also contact Bo. That's B-O at money-guy.com. And we just appreciate everything that you're doing for the show. Um, keep it up, and hopefully you can tell this really is one of those things that just energizes us. So every time you reach out to us, it kind of gives us that, that oomph to kind of keep this thing moving. So thanks so much. And we'll talk to you in about two weeks. I'm your host, Brian Preston. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. 
Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. (laughs) 